This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moya Lady McLean, and tonight the tables have turned because Michael Walker is on the other side of the screen. Michael, hello. I am honoured to be co-hosting with you today. I'm excited and a bit nervous. And we've got a lot to get through. So coming up later tonight, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel is on the brink of a ground invasion of Gaza. And we'll also be talking about media and Palestine, the way Western media has been reporting the crisis and the plight of journalists who have stayed in Gaza to the bitter end. Let's go to our first story. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, addressed the country last night saying this. We are raining hellfire on Hamas. We've already killed thousands of terrorists, and this is only the beginning. Simultaneously, we are preparing for a ground invasion. I will not elaborate on when, how, or how many. I will also not elaborate on the various calculations we're making, which the public is mostly unaware of, and that is how things should be. Hours after that speech, Israeli troops crossed into Gaza in what's being described as a ground raid. This footage, released by the IDF, apparently shows Israeli tanks inside northern Gaza, where shelling took place. There were also airstrikes, and a BBC reporter based in the Israeli town of Ashkelon, just north of Gaza, described machine gun fire that went on into the early hours of the morning. The IDF claims that numerous terror cells, infrastructure and anti-tank missile launch posts were hit. It described the raid as, quote, preparation for the next stages of combat. That presumably is a reference to a threatened ground invasion of Gaza. Writing in The Guardian, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies Paul Rogers has described what a ground invasion is likely to mean for the inhabitants of the Gaza Strip. In Gaza, many more districts will be destroyed and infiltration tunnels will be hit repeatedly, many with the US-made GBU-28 bunker-busting bomb. Israel already has about 100 of these and it may now have the more advanced GBU-72. Given the utter determination of Benjamin Netanyahu's government to destroy Hamas, many thousands more Palestinians will be killed and tens of thousands wounded. If the war eventually ends, the Palestinians of Gaza are likely to be contained in a far smaller area and subject to intense surveillance. Israel, of course, claims that its only aim in this military campaign is to destroy Hamas and regain hostages taken on the 7th of October. Now, I feel like we've reported that this claim doesn't really stand up to scrutiny in the wake of the widespread generalised destruction in Gaza and the land grabs being made in the West Bank. But let's take it at face value for a second If that is the aim, Rogers says that any brutal ground invasion is unlikely to serve Israel's interests in this area at all. The article goes on to say this. Instead of extinguishing Hamas, the war will result in tens of thousands more very angry young Palestinians set to join the organisation or a similar successor. If the assumption is that this will be mitigated by heavy surveillance of two million Palestinians crammed into a small part of Gaza, then this ignores what's happening in the West Bank. There, more than 3 million Palestinians live under an occupation that has only worsened under Netanyahu's hardline governments. Rogers then goes on to make this assessment. Essentially, an intense destruction of Gaza could end up displacing the locus of conflict to the West Bank rather than actually ending it. 
across much of the global south and especially the Middle East, an anti-Israel mood is growing that is radically different from support offered on and immediately after 7th of October. Hamas already has support in the West Bank and incompetence and corruption in the Palestinian Authority is rendering that body irrelevant. While the current international focus is inevitably on Gaza, the significance of the West Bank is being missed as its potential to be the site of a neo-Hamas movement. Netanyahu government's overall approach is making a very difficult problem even worse. Humanitarian-oriented ceasefire is still possible, but that will not happen unless the US, Britain and the EU specifically demand it. If they don't, they will bear part of the responsibility for what happens next. The US and Britain don't seem anywhere near calling for a ceasefire, and in the meantime, Gaza continues to be bombed. This was Khan Yunus today after an Israeli airstrike. Located in the far south of Gaza, the city is now home to many Palestinians who fled the north on instructions of the Israeli government. Despite seeking safety there, they're still coming under Israeli assault. More than 7,000 Palestinians have now been killed in the bombardment of Gaza, and 3,000 of those killed are children, according to the Gazan Health Ministry. I want to show you a video of what this aerial terror means for those children. This was shot in Khan Yunus today. When you see scenes like that, multiplied by the thousands, the thought of a ground invasion as an exercise in ending violence at all seems absolutely preposterous to me. But that is if this ground invasion happens at all. Michael Netanyahu has been threatening a ground invasion since the 7th of October. He's made a lot of noise about it. He's built up the troops. But he does seem to be holding back. Do you think Israel will actually invade Gaza? Probably at some point. I mean, there's been various theories about why this has been pushed back as far as it has. So one of them was to say that you've got all of these international leaders who are sort of taking it in turns um, to visit Israel so that Netanyahu has to wait before he can go in. And so the idea here is that you've got these Western powers who are trying to um, mitigate the damage done by a very angry Israel after these um, attacks, which they suffered on the 7th of October. Now, I don't really put too much on that particular theory, because I think there are some very obvious reasons why Netanyahu wouldn't have mounted a ground invasion yet. I think the most obvious one is that Israel is quite a small country. You know, this isn't like when Russia invaded Ukraine and they can send tens of thousands of people to the front line and sort of endure lots of casualties. Russia, obviously, a very big country. Um, you know, the, the, the social ties will be looser in terms of different people in, in, in that country, which is huge geographically. In Israel, if you send soldiers into a dangerous war zone, which if you're fighting in urban territory, that is going to be costly, however sophisticated your army is, if you're trying to um, attack an urban area where you're hated by everyone, right? That's going to be incredibly difficult. Lots of lives will be lost. And because Israel is a small society, lots of people will suddenly begin to know people who have become casualties, who have died in war. So they've got that reason to be very reluctant in there. Um, the other reason they're, I think, reluctant to go in there is because they still don't know what they want. Uh, this idea of sort of telling the world that Hamas is ISIS, which is, I mean, I think pretty ridiculous, frankly. Hamas has been in control, in power in Gaza for 17 years, right? It's, it's completely tied up in the institutions of Gaza. Um, it also doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have the same 
ideology as, as ISIS. It's a sort of, it's, it's a militant liberation wing that's done some terrible things or some of its activists have done some terrible things. That's why I say they're not a terrorist organization. They're a militant group which has committed war crimes. Yes, we have to be absolutely clear they have committed war crimes, but that doesn't make them a terrorist group. What Israel seems to have done is to say, this is like ISIS and therefore we have to destroy them by any means necessary. But the only way they could have possibly done that is essentially by emptying Gaza. Now, that was their initial plan. Their initial plan was to say, we are going to bomb Gaza to such a degree that it's impossible to live there. We're also going to try and pay off the Egyptians so they take the Gazans um, into their territory. And then we can say, we got rid of Hamas. And the only, re the only way to get rid of, of Hamas was to get rid of all the Gazans. Now, Egypt hasn't played ball there. Egypt has said, um, we don't really want you to export this problem um, to, to Egypt. And when I say this problem, I don't mean Palestinian people. What I mean is the Palestinian cause, essentially, because if you have two million people forced into a second Nakba, whereby they go from Gaza into Egypt, you can sure as hell bet there is still going to be a Palestinian national struggle, but it will just be fighting Israel from Egypt instead of fighting Israel from Gaza. And if you were the Egyptians, you don't really want that. So you have this situation where it's really impossible to see what the end game is, what Israel want. They have set themselves a, a, a challenge, a target, which ground invasion or no ground invasion seems to be almost impossible to achieve unless you you empty the strip. Of course, if you are a sort of Western high-tech military, you don't want to lose many casualties. What you do is you, you take a step back and as much as possible, you just bomb the place to smithereens. Um, that does seem to be um, Israel's strategy so far. Um, again, it's, it's unclear to see exactly what purpose that serves. Maybe it's to try and force people into the south of, of Gaza. And then I read this morning, actually, it was in an Israeli newspaper, that one plan is to say, if Egypt won't agree to take refugees from Gaza, what we might do is create a humanitarian situation that is so catastrophic that you end up with Palestinians storming the Rafah gate um, so it's it's not a, a case of Egyptians voluntarily accepting these people. It's people storming the Rafa gate. And then you get the Americans to say, well, we'll cancel some of your debt, Egypt, if you let them stay there. Um, so these are all very different outcomes. And to be honest, in a way, it's unclear how a ground invasion helps with any of them. You know, a, a ground invasion could make sense if, you know, you're living in this fantasy world where 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 Hamas is this very small group of extremists who all the people of Gaza hate. And a ground invasion, you can go in there and you can do counter-terrorism counter and just take out Hamas and, and liberate the people of Gaza from this organization and then leave. That's a fantasy. So it is unclear to me what a ground invasion would do. We shouldn't be, um, we should be clear that a ground invasion would be catastrophic. Obviously, bombing from above is, is, is a disaster in terms of civilian casualties. But these soldiers are not going to be humane towards the Gazans. And I don't say that, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that Israeli people are, are necessarily more brutal when it comes to fighting than any other nation. But you have got openly politicians saying these people are animals, these people are non-humans. That was what a former um, UN ambassador from Israel was saying on, on television today or yesterday. And I can pretty much guarantee that that is not going to be an unusual view within the IDF. So this ground invasion is not going to be a humane one. It's going to be you're, you're sending a lot of highly armed young people into a territory where everyone's been told that these are animals who want to kill you for ideological reasons. Uh, are we really expecting those people to respect human rights law? I don't think so. So a ground invasion would be a disaster. It's unclear what it will achieve even for the Israelis when it comes to their war aims. But Netanyahu has said it will happen, so it probably will. They've almost got to save face here. The main thing that I get out of this is one that any of these outcomes is obviously going to be 
absolutely catastrophic to the Palestinians who are not only being displaced and killed at a horrendous rate, but also being treated as pawns in their own territory. But there is a, there's been a pause on the ground invasion. It's not happened yet, which means that is time for countries like the US, like Britain, to negotiate this ceasefire, or as the likes of Keir Starmer are calling it, the humanitarian pause, because they're so scared of the word ceasefire. Why aren't they? Well, I suppose it, well, I, mean, I think a humanitarian pause is potentially more than just semantically different from a ceasefire, because a ceasefire suggests you've sort of got this guarantee from both sides, and it, you, you presume that's going to be for a for a sort of set period of of time while some negotiations take place. That's sort of the the normal um, sort of sense of of what a ceasefire would mean. A humanitarian pause to me sounds more like you know there'll be twelve hours whereby. Um, hospitals are able to refuel or trucks with water can get to certain parts of Gaza. So it, it wouldn't be a ceasefire whereby you try and negotiate and you try and stop the the restarting of fighting. It's to say, well, we're having this six hour pause, but it's absolutely guaranteed that we're going to start bombing Gaza again in, in that six hours time. So I do think there is some difference there. I mean, I suppose when it comes to the Western powers, so you... I mean, when it comes to Keir Starmer, I think it's very banal, which is trying to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn. It's very, you know, it's very ridiculous and, and stupid way of doing politics when lots of lives are at stake. But when it comes to why the West in general isn't asking for a ceasefire, well, the reason Israel is desperate not to have one is because they know that the the longer the period of time between October the 7th and well, the longer a period of time that has passed since October the 7th, let's say, the the more the world is going to be focusing on the the, the destruction of, of Gaza, the, the killing of Palestinian civilians, and the longer they're going to be taking heat um, from sort of international publics, the more pressure there will be in Britain and America for, for politicians to take a slightly different um, position in relation to Israel. The, the bigger pressure there will be in Arab countries as well, especially from Arab publics as much as Arab leaders. So Israel wants this done quickly. The last thing they want is some breathing space where everyone can take a step back and say, actually, what do we really want here? You know, Israel's ideal I think, would have been in the four days following the 7th of October to basically bomb Gaza to the extent that everyone is, it's almost impossible to, to, to live there, make a deal with Egypt and kick everyone out and then apologize for it afterwards. Oh, whoops. Um, yeah, we, we we have done a second Nakba. Please forgive us. What they want to do is create facts on the ground and apologize for it afterwards. I mean, it's Israel, so they're probably not going to apologize anyway. Um, but they want to create facts on the ground and then do diplomacy afterwards. The longer a ceasefire, the more they have to do diplomacy before they change the facts on the ground. And that makes it harder for them because obviously at the moment, Israel has all of the military might. Um, so so long as diplomacy doesn't intervene, they're going to be okay. They want to to, to maximize what they can do before there are serious international negotiations over this. Let's go on to our next story. The reason we know so much about what is happening to Palestinians in Gaza is thanks to the journalist reporting from there. The majority of them are Palestinian themselves. This means that not only are they facing huge peril in order to get news out to the rest of the world, they're also having to report on the displacement and destruction of their very own communities. On Tuesday, the scale of just how big an ask this was, was laid bare. This is Wael Adadu. He is a senior Palestinian journalist and Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief. That means that he's been leading Al Jazeera's coverage from the region. Al Dadu refused to leave Gaza City after Israel warned Palestinian civilians last week to evacuate to the south of the territory. But his family did move to a safe house in central Gaza in the Nusrat refugee camp, 
Well, on Wednesday evening, that camp was bombed and many members of al-Badu's family were among 21 people confirmed killed in the attack. This is the moment an Al Jazeera colleague broke down while announcing that news live on air. Al-Dadu is confirmed to have lost his wife, son, daughter and grandson in the airstrike. Cameras captured the moment he discovered their deaths. Footage aired on Al Jazeera showed Dadu visiting the Alaska Martyrs Hospital morgue to see his family. And he made an immediate statement to the press. Today, he and surviving members of his family attended the funerals of their loved ones. But Dadu did not have time off to mourn. He immediately returned to his job as a journalist. He told Turkish press news agency Andalou this. This will never silence our voices. Journalism is our noble mission. Israel is targeting civilians and committing massacres against families. This is part of what Palestinian families in Gaza are going through every day. Al Jazeera have also released a statement condemning the killings and calling for international intervention. They said this. The Aldadu's home was targeted in the Nusret camp in the centre of Gaza, where they had sought refuge after being displaced by the initial bombardment in their neighbourhood, following Prime Minister Netanyahu's call for all civilians to move south. Al Jazeera is deeply concerned about the safety and well-being of our colleagues in Gaza and hold the Israeli authorities responsible for their security. The network strongly condemns the indiscriminate targeting and killing of innocent civilians in Gaza, which has led to the loss of Wael al-Dadu's family and countless others. We urge the international community to intervene and put an end to these attacks on civilians, thereby safeguarding innocent lives. Well, earlier today, I spoke to Sherif Mansour, the Middle East and North Africa program coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. I started by asking him about what the number of journalists killed says about Israel's military campaign in Gaza. This is the deadliest time to be a journalist in Gaza to our records. We have not seen that toll among journalists covering any conflict or war 
including the past Gaza wars and including anywhere else around the world. We have already seen two dozens of journalists killed, which is more than what we have counted since 1992. Um, this is a heavy toll, even comparable to other regions, other recent conflicts. We have documented more uh, for over a year, around 15 journalists killed covering the Ukraine war. And in Syria, the deadliest place for journalists over the past 10 years, at the highest, we've recorded 30 journalists killed in 2012 and 2013 over a whole year. Um, of course, majority of those killed are Palestinian journalists, 20 out of the 24. Many of them are local and freelance journalists who did not choose to be in Gaza. Many of them were on the front lines covering the airstrikes, and um, many of them did not have safety equipment or even support of a newsroom behind them. We talk about, you know, the, the support of a newsroom and, and safety equipment. It, it sounds a bit like to me as if we're placing blame on the journalists themselves when it's obviously Israeli airstrikes that are killing these journalists or Israeli forces. Well, the mere fact is we have not seen a lot of journalists in Gaza, international journalists, media outlets. And this is why there is an outsized risk uh, against local Palestinian journalists. Out of the 20 journalists we have recorded uh, killed since 2001, 18 of them were Palestinian journalists, only one British and one uh, Italian. And so far, out of the 24 We've uh, recorded killed in this conflict since October 7. 20 were Palestinian journalists, three were Israeli journalists, and Lebanese on the other border in the north was Lebanon. So yes, they are the most vulnerable, uh, but they are the most needed right now to tell the story of what's happening in Gaza. And of course, many of them have lost even media facilities, dozens of them that were bombed in high towers in the early stages of the bombardment. And many of them lost their homes as well in airstrikes and family members, as we saw Al Jazeera's uh, Wild Ahdoh yesterday. Why are international newsrooms or international journalists not present in Gaza? Is there a decision not to deploy people there or is it, you know, the occupation means that they can't go there? Well, there is a limitation on access. Uh, not just uh, international Israeli journalists have not been allowed to go into Gaza for more than 15 years. And international journalists who are rushing into the region to cover right now, uh, registering with the Israeli army, are kept uh, away from Gaza and away from the operation. There was a dwindling number for a reason. Uh, over the course of for military confrontations since 2012, uh, media facilities, including for international media, were bombed. And we just saw two years ago the Associated Press in Al Jazeera building bombed also by the Israeli army. And just one year ago, a prominent Palestinian American Al Jazeera journalist, Shirin Abu Akhla, 
was shot and killed by the Israeli army while covering a raid. And in all of those cases, there was no accountability. No one was held and no one was charged. Of course, that impacted the calculus, the risk calculation for a lot of international media and a lot of journalists who wanted to cover Gaza over the years, but also most recently seeing the exponential risks of bombardment, uh, ground raids, and the possibility of a ground invasion makes it a lot more riskier. We saw yesterday the Al Jazeera bureau chief in Gaza, Wael al-Dadu's family killed by an Israeli airstrike in central Gaza. Now, he seemed to suggest that his family may have been targeted because they were told it was going to be a safe place they were moved to. Then the camp they were in was struck by an Israeli missile. Is there any evidence that his family and the 21 others who were killed were targeted? And is there precedent for Israel targeting journalists or journalist families? Well, we have uh, just counted a few examples in which Al Jazeera officer was bombed in an airstrike. Uh, their journalists were killed covering this conflict, even injured. Uh, and more recently, the week ago, when uh, a shot by the Israeli army side in clashes with Hezbollah killed uh, a Lebanese journalist and injured six more, including two Al Jazeera journalists. So they have been paying a heavy toll. Al Jazeera have been one of the few uh, international news organization who maintained physical presence in Gaza and the West Bank and Israel and now on the border with uh, Lebanon to continue to tell this story. And uh, we've mourned with them when their colleagues were killed and we mourn with them when their colleagues' families were killed. We don't think as if Shireen Abu Akhla, it was a one-off case of journalists killed by the IDF we said that when we released a report, deadly pattern in May in Israel. It's also families have been killed, uh, mainly Palestinian journalist families. At least a dozen of them out of the count we have, uh, have been killed with their families and uh, at home. There are others who reported uh, their houses bombarded and had to flee south. And of course, there is nowhere safe. Many of them say even after they go south, they have not found a safe haven. I've been surprised by the Western response to the deaths of journalists in Palestine. We think this is unprecedented. We have not seen anything like it in recent memory. And we do believe that there, there is a role for world leader, US leader to play all government who are allies of Israel to continue to raise publicly with their Israeli counterparts the rules of engagement, uh, how Israel can take steps to safeguard civilian and journalists while covering the conflict, add more checks to ensure their safety. There is a role for the media to play in the conflict and outside the conflict, and that role has to be relying on journalists on the ground to provide a timely, accurate, independent account of what's happening. And for 
journalists and their editors to give the people who are in the region and over the world an understanding of the motivation of the warring parties and the implications of their policies. Because without them, we are only ending up with misinformation and disinformation that can only fuel the conflict. What other challenges are journalists in Gaza facing currently that go beyond military airstrikes? Well, in addition to these exponential risks, uh, they are facing uh, ground raids. They are possibly facing ground invasion, but I think many of them have now lost even connection with the outside world. They don't have electricity and internet to be able to communicate. Uh, Some of them have even stopped working, saying that it's dangerous to be anywhere outside. And even some of them said that they'd rather be with their families if they're going to die. But there are a few who continue to work and continue to take those risks. And they've said because they want to tell the story of what's happening on the ground, because they are our eyes into the conflict where no one else can access or even get out of Gaza. As Sharif Mansour said there, a record number of journalists have been killed in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. As of the 26th of October, 24 journalists have been killed and 20 of them have been Palestinian. Like all the people killed in Israel and Palestine since the 7th of October, these journalists leave behind unfinished lives, their hopes, their dreams, their futures. But they were also irreplaceable conduits for organising and transmitting information to the rest of the world amid a worsening humanitarian crisis. This is a picture sent to Washington Post reporter Niha Massa on the 18th of October. In the foreground is Palestinian journalist Rushdie Saraj. In the back of the photo, smiling, is his colleague, Ibrahim Lafi. Both these young men have been killed in Israeli attacks since the 7th of October. Palestinian journalist Yara Eid was best friends with Ibrahim Lafi and mentored by Rushdie Siraj. She posted a clip yesterday reflecting on their deaths and the lack of reporters now working in Gaza. And, and Israel is making it very clear that they want to target journalists. Not only they killed Ibrahim Lafi, uh, my best friend and a journalist, and Rushdi Sarraj, the founder of Ain Media, Palestinian journalist also, and two of my other colleagues have been missing. And there's no one on the ground from Ain Media reporting. I'm the only one who's working now. Um, and, and, you know... Not only that, but today we had the devastating news of how Israel targeted the house of, um, you know, the Al Jazeera journalist and, and renowned journalist, uh, Wa'il al-Dahdouh, killing his wife, his son and his uh, daughter, including other family members. I can't explain to you how seeing the news, watching Wa'il, who I knew um, quite close and I've worked with before, and seeing the pain in his voice and seeing how he saw his family. Every single journalist right now is terrified because they are feeling like they're putting their family at risk because, you know, they're targeting journalist houses. They're trying to inflict pain upon us, even if they don't want to target us, they target our houses and our families. You know, but we're trying to keep reporting. We're trying to keep telling you the truth, but we need your help to keep spreading what we're giving you, the footage we're sharing, the the situation that's happening. 
I read on uh, Yara Eid's social media, she said she never wanted to be an activist. She just wanted to do job as a journalist, but by dint of being born a Palestinian, she was forced to become an activist. I truly don't know, as a fellow international journalist, whether I would be able to keep up the strength that she has in this situation. And my heart really goes out to all my colleagues internationally who are suffering right now. Let's go to our next story, and we're sticking with media. Israel's alleged targeting of journalists is not its only form of media suppression in Palestine. Al Jazeera has long come under criticism from Israel for its reporting inside Gaza and the West Bank. This is because it's funded by the government of Qatar. For its part, Al Jazeera says operations are totally independent and, you know, its coverage does seem to reflect that claim. Maybe even a bit too independent for some because US Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Qatar on the 13th of October. There he met with Qatar's emir and prime minister. Qatar has been playing a key role in negotiating with Hamas for the release of Israeli hostages. So no doubt there was a lot to discuss. But according to US news website Axios, negotiations weren't the only topic of discussion. According to sources, Blinken says that he asked the Prime Minister of Qatar to rein in Al Jazeera's coverage of the war. Axios goes on to report this. Blinken told American Jewish leaders on Monday that when he was in Doha on October the 13th, he asked the Qatari government to change its public posture towards Hamas, three people who attended the meeting said. According to the three attendees, Blinken said he gave toning down Al Jazeera coverage of the war in Gaza as an example of steps the Qatari government can take to do this. Blinken said he asked the Qataris to turn down the volume on Al Jazeera's coverage because it is full of anti-Israel incitement, according to one source. Blinken didn't give any examples of the heightened rhetoric he asked to be dialed back. Now, neither Al Jazeera, the Qatari government, nor the US government have responded to requests for comment from Axios. But if true, that story reveals how seriously Israel and its allies are taking the information war. And it also suggests the US is keen to shield a larger audience across the Middle East from the picture emerging inside Gaza, fearing rising tensions in the regions. At the same time, Israel has been seeking to shut down Al Jazeera within its own borders. Shlomo Kahi is Israel's communications minister. According to high-profile Israeli paper Haaretz, in the days after the 7th of October Hamas attack, Shlomo said that he wanted to push through legislation that would shut down Al Jazeera in Israel. That intention became a terrifying reality last Friday. The Israeli government has now approved emergency rules that would allow it to shut down Al Jazeera. The Times of Israel reports the proposal is to close Al Jazeera in Israel and it will be brought to the next meeting of the security cabinet. When announcing the new legislation, Kahi said this. Israel is at war on land, in the air, at sea and on the public diplomacy front. We will not allow in any way broadcasts that harm the security of the state. Al Jazeera's broadcasts and reports constitute incitement against Israel, help Hamas, ISIS and the terror organisations with their propaganda and encourage violence against Israel. Kahi's office told the Times of Israel that the intention to shut down Al Jazeera in Israel was based on this. Proof that is assisting the enemy, broadcasting propaganda in service of Hamas in Arabic and English to viewers around the world and even passing sensitive information to the enemy. Al Jazeera denies these claims. 
It's not the first time Israel has tried to ban Al Jazeera. In 2017, Netanyahu's then-government tried to close its Jerusalem office after accusing its journalists of inciting violence. The context of that threat was a clash between Israel and Palestine over the Alaska Mosque in Jerusalem. And in the 2021 Israel-Palestine conflict, this happened. That was the Al-Yala Tower in Gaza City. It housed Al Jazeera's offices as well as those of the Associated Press. And it was levelled by an Israeli strike after the IDF alleged it was being used by Hamas militants. Journalists working there denied this and no evidence for the assertion has ever been presented by Israel. Too late though because workers inside the building were reportedly given 10 minutes to evacuate before it was crushed. What I want to know is, Michael... I get why Israel is trying to shut down Al Jazeera because it doesn't want any information getting out. But why is the US trying to interfere with press freedom in the region? Because the US is the staunchest ally of Israel in the world and always has been. It's it's the US that protects Israel in the UN by vetoing anything on the Security Council that might condemn Israeli actions, which are clearly against international law, such as expanding settlements. And it's America, which which is shielding them diplomatically. Now, I think this is a really interesting story because I mean, one, I should say, I, I don't know if we are in a position to say that, you know, Al Jazeera is completely independent of the Qatari government. Like, I, I would not be surprised if there was some pressure from the Qatari government to Al Jazeera as to to what sort of images and messages they should bring. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. But I think what, what I do know is that the common sense of the Western media is so far out of whack from what most people think um, in the global South, in the Arab world, that... Al Jazeera is just a very important correction to that, even if it does have some biases. It's a, it's a, it's an important correction to the biases that our media have. Now, what are those biases? Now, there are lots of them, but I would say the key ones here, when it comes to this, this, this current conflict or the current, um, you know, heightening of this conflict, is this idea that Hamas are ISIS, that Hamas are some sort of wild death cult terrorist organization that don't have any political aims um, beyond killing people um, that can't possibly be negotiated with because they're so irrational and um, sort of devilish um, and that, you know, Israel has no option but to destroy them. Now, I don't think many people at all in the Arab world think that, right? Most people um, outside of the West, in fact, I think see, you know, some people will see Hamas as this sort of ISIS-like terrorist organization, but I think most will see it as, you know, a liberation movement, um, a nationalist Islamist organization. Um, and, you know, to one degree or another, people will, will accept that it has committed some pretty atrocious acts when it comes to, to killing civilians. Of course, I think you know, the, the, killing civilians, targeting civilians is wrong, but I don't think Hamas is anything like ISIS. And it, it's very much an ideological construction by Israel to try and justify the complete flattening of Gaza. I don't think much of the world is buying that. Um, Al Jazeera isn't really buying that. They're not demonstrating that kind of idea or they're not projecting that kind of idea. And that's a real problem for the US because the USA and Israel, they need this to be common sense, right? If if they were to allow this sort of argument, this debate about whether or not Hamas or ISIS, they would probably lose. But what they have to do is just keep repeating it so, so often, so often, make sure that anyone who who suggests otherwise is instantly demonized, is instantly shamed, is instantly threatened with their jobs, right? 
you, you have to have this, this shield whereby no one is allowed to dissent from this line. Al Jazeera is dissenting from that line, as is pretty much, you know, probably the global majority, right? And, and that's very uncomfortable for, for the United States. Now, I mean, Qatar is a, is a powerful country, They've got huge gas reserves. I'm not sure how much they are going to be kowtowed um, by the United States in a situation like this, but that's clearly why the United States are trying to do it. I suppose the other thing here is, you know, the reporting of Al Jazeera does have international consequences. So it was um, the bombing of, of the hospital. I think it was partly sort of the, the coverage that Al Jazeera gave of that, that meant that all these Arab leaders pulled out of it. And it's a real player in this conflict. And I'm glad it's a player in this conflict because I think one of the reasons why Palestinians have been able to be marginalized in the past is because there weren't sort of counterweights to the incredibly biased Western media. Now, as I say, Al Jazeera might be biased, but that is, if anything, that's just a counterweight and a really, really important one. And so I think the idea that it it, it should be um, shut down or policed by the Americans is somewhat disturbing. I mean, also, it's important that we don't separate this story from the fact that Israel is actively killing um, the families of journalists and journalists in, in, in Gaza. So this is not just um, threats. This is not just a sort of regulatory changes that make it harder for someone to report from um, Israel. It is a, a violent threat, which, which the Israelis are sort of putting towards journalists who dare to cover the region in a way which is different from the lines which are being put out by, by Israel and which they essentially want anyone to be, to be punished um, for deviating from. Over the past seven days, more than 30,000 people have subscribed to us here on YouTube. Our coverage has received over 5 million views. That's 3.3 million more than in the same period in September. I don't say that to boast. I say that because it demonstrates that we're working really hard to bring you coverage that mainstream media in Britain and elsewhere is, you know, completely failing to provide right now. And we're currently trying to get 3,000 more subscribers in order to hit a fundraising target so we can continue this sort of coverage, continue this sort of work rate into 2024 and beyond. So if you can, please take a moment to visit our website, especially because there's lots of really, really useful stories on this conflict going on right now. The link is in the description. And you can either join our regular supporters from just £1 per month to back our work here at Navarra Media, or you can make a one-off donation. Every little helps us put this news out. Now, if you happen to be in Sandwich, Kent, before sunrise this morning, you might have been greeted with quite the sight. This is footage taken from the location where Instro Precision Limited sits. That's the site of more than 150 trade unionists protesting Instro. Why? Because Instro is a subsidiary of Elbit Systems, one of Israel's biggest weapons and surveillance manufacturers. Elbit has long been the target of a campaign by activist group Palestine Action to shutter its operations in Britain and beyond. But this protest wasn't a Palestine action-directed one. To tell us more about this action, we're joined live by Navarra Media's Labour correspondent, Polly Smythe, who has been reporting on today's demo. Polly, hello. Hi, Moya. I'm very excited to have you on for the first time. So, trade unionists were really heavily represented in this demo. Why? So, 
The immediate context is that trade unionists were responding to a global call to action made by Palestinian trade unions. Um, and we can get into that more in a minute. I would say the broader context is really twofold. Firstly, trade unionists were there today in a very specific form of solidarity. They were standing shoulder to shoulder with Palestinians as workers. One of the people uh, there today at the blockade um, was a junior doctor who was called Abby, who's a member of the BMA. You know, and she said, um, seeing fellow doctors and their patients being killed is unbearable. And following the announcement that the healthcare system in Gaza has collapsed, many of us felt we had no choice but to take this action. I think the other thing that we're seeing is a new site of struggle open up. So we know the UK government supplies weapons to Israel. We know weapons exported from the UK have been used on airstrikes in Gaza. So one train of struggle there would be to say, OK, we have to force the government to stop allowing UK made weapons to be used in the bombardment of Gaza. Another way would be to say, well, who builds those weapons? Who transports those weapons to Israel? Who conducts the research that allows for these weapons to be developed in the first place? And then you start thinking about workers in arms manufacturing, in transport, in um, research and in universities, um, which means that trade unions become this really important mechanism through which we can struggle against the Israeli war machine. Um, and in my opinion, this is exactly the sort of terrain that we should be seeing trade unionists operate and struggle on. Um, all week, uh, a story has been cropping up um, in conversations with me and you know friends and other um, unionists, which is this story about in 1984 in Dublin, a 21-year-old cashier named Mary Manning refused to sell two South African grapefruits. Um, she was following a directive given to her by her union, which said, we don't want you handling South African produce. She was suspended. That prompted a walkout with her and nine colleagues. Um, almost three years later, with very little support from either the union movement or from politicians, um, the Irish government banned the importation of South African fruit and vegetables. Um, and I bring this up not to idealise the past, but I think it's important to say that, you know, historically, when trade unions have had more members, they've been in a better place to say, we represent workers as a class. When trade unions have fewer members, um, that's slightly harder to do. And instead, actually, what they end up doing often is uh, speaking to the immediate needs of those members, be that pensions, be that pay, um, be that conditions. And so I think today is really important because what these trade unionists were saying is that, no, trade unions should address the larger situation. They should offer practical solidarity. They should stand with workers in Palestine. That is the kind of terrain of struggle that trade unions should be operating on. <laughs> Let's briefly just outline what Palestinian trade unions are calling for in response to Israel's military campaign in the occupied territories. So last week, a coalition of um, Palestinian trade unions um, issued a global call to action to the international labour movement to end all forms of complicity um, with Israel's crimes. And they made five very specific demands. Um, firstly, to refuse to build weapons destined for Israel. Secondly, to refuse to transport weapons to Israel. Um, third, to um, take action against companies um, complicit in implementing Israel's siege um, with whom unions might have contracts. Um, fourthly, to pressure governments to stop all military trade with Israel. And then um, fifth was to pass motions um, at branches to this effect. Uh, and I, I think it's also important at this point to say that there is... Um, 
an immediate precedent for this call. Um, so in May 2021, um, amid like a devastatingly heavy wave airstrikes on Gaza, um, a call went out from Palestinian trade unions for the uh, international trade union movement to refuse to handle Israeli goods. Um, you know, and that call was heard in Italy, where dock workers refused to load a shipment of arms destined for Israel. It was heard in South Africa, where dock workers refused to offload the cargo of an Israeli container ship. Um, and it was heard in the US as well, um, where workers similarly refused to unload the cargo of an Israeli container ship. You know, and at the time, uh, in Oakland, a Palestinian rank-and-file trade unionist said, an injury to one is an injury to all. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's real precedent um, for the kinds of calls that these Palestinian trade unions are making. Obviously, you said, you know, this this represents a change in the way that trade unionists are seeing um, issues like uh, Palestine and the siege of Gaza. But uh, there were 150 people there today. There's about 6 million trade union members in the UK. How have trade unions and their leadership responded thus far to that siege and blockade? So by now, most trade unions, although surprisingly still not all, um, have released statements. And these statements tend to call for a variety of things. Um, the, the statements that are strongest, in my opinion, make very specific demands. Um, so today, Unison, which is the UK's largest union, um, released a statement that called on the British government to support a ceasefire. Um, the RMT have demanded that the British government halt the UK um, sale of arms to Israel. Um, and the Public and Commercial Services Union um, have called on the UK government to condemn Israel for committing war crimes and also noted that they were appalled at the UK's um, UK government's tacit approval for collective punishment. Um, so that's kind of on the statement side. Um, there, there is also organising being done by members. Again, this is at the um, rank and file level, though. Um, today, a Unite branch that represents um, workers who work for um, work for parliamentary staff in Westminster and throughout Britain um, called on parliamentarians to demand an immediate ceasefire. Um, and in their statement, they said, we are concerned that our members will be expected to assist parliamentarians in aiding, abetting and encouraging the commission of war crimes against the people of Gaza by Israel. Um, there's also been trade union presences at marches um, in London uh, at the weekend. Um, we had Matt Rack, um, who's the Fire Brigades Union General Secretary, Mick Whelan, who's the General Secretary of ASLEF, um, Eddie Dempsey, the RMT's Deputy General Secretary, um, Joe Grady from the UCU is there. Um, and, and, you know, some unions have also pledged practical support, whether that's to um, sister unions um, in Palestine, and, and um, they're also some have made donations. But yes, um, the the activity today was very much done at the rank and file level. Uh, one thing I'm thinking about is obviously trade unions like Unite, like GMB, uh, they represent members who work at weapons manufacturers. And I imagine there's division within these unions about the approaches to the military campaign that Israel are running. And it's a really difficult question, isn't it? About workers employed with arms manufacturers the manufacturers aren't going to close anytime soon, sadly. The stocks are all going up. These workers are unlikely to quit their jobs. Unions aren't going to refuse to represent them. So how are unions suggesting to approach this issue where some of their workers are protesting arms manufacturers and some of their workers are working in those arms manufacturers? So uh, having members in weapons manufacturing shouldn't and hasn't precluded unions taking stances of solidarity with Palestine. 
uh, you know, in July, Unite at its annual conference reaffirmed its support of the BDS campaign, um, called on the government to abandon its um, anti-boycott bill and also recognised that Israel is practising apartheid in Palestine. Um, but you're completely right that um, there are unions for whom the Palestinian workers' call will be much more confronting. Um, so something that's going on at the moment is that um, a handful of Unite members came together and released an open letter that now has hundreds of signatories. Um, and that letter calls on the union to do a number of things, um, one of them being to pledge practical support to members who refuse to build or handle weapons destined for Israel, because Unite not only has um, members in um, weapons manufacturing, but also a substantial number of members in shipping and, and transport. Um, they also call on Unite to provide education about the occupation of Palestine to members in workplaces involved in the building and transportation of weapons. Um, and they suggest, you know, Unite could facilitate video conversations with, with representatives from Palestinian trade unions. Um, and I spoke to um, a Unite member called Sam um, about the open letter and something that struck me that I've taken away from it. Um, you know, he said it's in the boss's interest to give very little information to the people who work in these sites. Um, and, you know, as far as I'm aware, I, I, I hope I'm right. Um, Instro, where the blockade happened today, um, you know, among the things they make, they make tripods and they make um head tilts for military observation equipment um, and so often you know workers make parts of the weapons that doesn't mean there's not a debate to be had around the agency we can expect from workers um, but what Sam told me was how the conversations go when he approaches weapon um, workers in weapons manufacturing is he'll ask do you know where the parts that you produce here end up what do you think the regulation should be around who can buy part from sites like yours? And, and he said that a lot of the time, the people who will speak to will say, yes, there definitely should be regulations around where these parts end up. And no, they shouldn't be used to kill civilians indiscriminately. And that is the opening of a conversation because then he can say, well, that is how they are being used. What do you want to do about it? And that what do you want to do about it is made a lot easier if Unite pledge support to workers who say they will refuse to handle weapons, either in transport or in manufacturing. Polly Smy, thank you so much for contributing tonight. Let's go on to our next story. Journalists reporting from within Gaza are facing, as we've covered, deadly airstrikes, putting themselves and sometimes their families on the front line. But some journalists who are working for Western networks, on the other hand, are facing criticism for what many in the region think of as a skewed framing of the conflict. CNN in particular has come under fire for what some perceive as biased coverage that favours Israel. The broadcaster has denied this, but last week this happened in the West Bank. Journalists gather here because this is kind of where the clashes keep ha happens. So, all right. You are genocide supporters. You are not welcome here. Genocide supporters. Fuck CNN. Fuck CNN. Genocide supporters. All right, you see that people are very angry. They do not like all right, all right, the I way wanna, in which just, that, that CNN right. has been reporting the story. You hear that. But this is, we're fine. Um, but what you are seeing is the heightened fear, anger, um, frustration with what's happening. 
That was CNN's Sarah Sidner, and on the same day, her colleague, Clarissa Ward, was at the Egyptian side of the Rafa crossing. We ask you to condemn. Where are your condemnations? Where is your channel covering this? Cover this. Say the truth. We understand you're an employee. You're just a puppet. You're just a mouthpiece. Come talk to me like a human being. Come talk to me like a human being. Thank you. I understand you have your foreign policy. No, I've heard you. I've heard you. You hear me. I understand you have your foreign policy. I understand you speak for your government. I understand you represent your government. But that being said, you're a country that's claimed free speech. Your customized democracy is actually what led to Hamas. And now we are watching an occupation and we are watching the result of your silence, of your misrepresentation of Arabs. The woman speaking there is Egyptian podcaster Rakma Zain. She's now actually appeared on Piers Morgan's show where she was asked this. I know Clarissa Ward, the correspondent that you were uh, very passionate towards. In, in my opinion, having worked at CNN, she is one of the best foreign correspondents in the world. And I felt uh, absolutely has tried to straddle uh, this very tricky line of reporting fairly and accurately on what is a, a horrendous conflict. Um, when you look back at yourself in that exchange with Clarissa, how do you feel about the way that you uh, addressed her? Do you have any regret? Or do you feel you could have expressed yourself differently? Or do you feel it, it accurately represented how you were feeling? I'm not going to waste my time talking about the report with Clarissa, uh, because this takes away from the point. You mentioned before there was a deadlock in the debate. There's no deadlock in the debate. There is terror in the debate. You are unable to debate with Israel, because what's happened so far is we're witnessing the sick relationship between the United States and Israel, where basically uh, the United States has given uh, a permission for Israel to uh, have genocide on ground. And what's happened is we're seeing uh, no one can say no to Israel. The United Nations isn't able to say no to Israel without repercussions. Uh, media in, media figures aren't able to say no to Israel without uh, without repercussions. So what ends up happening is that you're basically raising a spoiled brat you're unable to say no to that has now grown up to be a sociopath. And let me reiterate that the relationship between the United States and Israel is putting the world in jeopardy. Zane's exchange with Clarissa Ward came up again in that interview after Morgan asked her this. What is your view as someone in Egypt about what happened right on your border there in Gaza uh, by Hamas against Israel? It's a very fair question. But the thing is, maybe I have a privilege being so close to the border, having many Palestinian friends, uh, knowing more history, uh, that I understand that once you oppress a people, and again, I'm not justifying what happened. The killing of civilians on both parts ought to be condemned. But the danger in you starting an interview, asking me to condemn Hamas, then pour into Israel's blind def defense of its own state, which ends up killing over 5,000 Palestinians, over 700 dead. And going back to the report that you were discussing at the beginning with the CNN reporter, the issue with that is everything is always taken out of context. And this is the issue we have with Western media. Had the journalist uh, been there on ground with the volunteers that night, as for example, I was, she would have listened to the bombardment of Israeli uh, bombs 
that start from 2.30 a.m. and do not stop. She would have also witnessed you, the fact that Rachma, we would get an okay from Israel's side. I'm not done. Uh, from Israel's side that the supplies would go in and then it's like they toy with your morale so that you for hope from both sides is stopped. The narrative has got to change. I'm not done. Now, it's not just people close to Palestine who agree with Zion that the narrative does have to change. The, the BBC has also come under fire for its coverage. Israel and its supporters have attacked the broadcaster for refusing to call Hamas fighters terrorists. But inside the BBC, there is a different kind of criticism. According to the Times, the BBC staff are accusing the broadcaster of showing a bias towards Israel, with one source saying this. What Hamas did was atrocious, and nobody is excusing its actions, but the mood from a lot of people in the building is that we aren't getting the coverage right. Staff have been crying in the toilets, and freelancers have been sacrificing earnings by not showing up to work because of the distress caused. Many people are feeling deeply disturbed. That complaint, which was reported in the Times, follows an email sent to the corporation's head, Tim Davey, by Rami Rahayam, a BBC correspondent based in Beirut. In that email, Rahayam says this. Words like massacre, slaughter and atrocities are being used prominently in reference to actions by Hamas, but hardly, if at all, in reference to actions by Israel. Does this not raise the question of the possible complicity of the BBC in incitement, dehumanisation and war propaganda? The BBC has taken upon itself in recent years the task of fighting fake news, disinformation, hate speech and such things, a trend in Western media. Where is the content analysing the flood of incitement against Palestinians and tracking its impact? Michael, what are you making of the coverage in Britain of the crisis? Maybe what are you making of the BBC's coverage in particular? Yeah, I mean, the BBC is in an interesting situation because they really are taking heat from both sides. And I think they've actually been under more pressure from the pro-Israel side who are desperate for them to refer to Hamas as terrorists. The reason they want them to refer to Hamas as terrorists is because then uh, they can paint this as good versus evil, legitimate versus illegitimate. Whereas when you talk, call them call them militants, um, then I think you are more accurately representing what is going on. And fair play to the BBC, they have resisted um, that pressure and some of their leading journalists have sort of quite, I think, articulately spoken about why it would be inappropriate for the BBC to sort of make such a moralizing judgment when it comes to one actor in a long-running conflict. Um, I think also, you know, one reason why the BBC hasn't been, or, or why there have been some, some, some moments where I think the BBC has done okay, is because generally I think when you have journalists who've spent time in Gaza and spent time in, West, in the West Bank and sort of know the reality of it, they just talk in a more reasonable way. So Jeremy Bowen on, on, on the BBC, I think he often gives interesting reports. I mean, I'm sure I've got some criticisms of them here and there, but clearly he's someone who knows what he's talking about. It's actually, I think, when you get to the the sort of pundits based in the UK or based in the United States, the, the discourse is just completely out of whack, completely ridiculous, because they're just imposing all of these ideological narratives they have um, already in their head that this is 9-11, that these are sort of um, animalistic terrorists and these are good people like us. I think it's easier to impose that on if you've never really been in the region and definitely if you haven't been to, to, to Gaza or the West Bank. So I don't think the BBC are the, the worst um, offender here. I do think the problem still and this is, I think, a problem even for people who try to have a, a fair approach to both sides. You know, there are, there are civilians dying on both sides. Is that the big mistake you make is if you pretend 
or if you don't give proper weight to the fact that this didn't all happen on October the 7th, right? And uh, I think one example here is especially this, this thing which has become, I suppose, common sense almost in this country and in the West, I'm sure it's not in many parts of the world, which is that Israel has a right to defend itself, right? And now, I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure, you know, lots of people, Israel can be expected to respond to an attack of this nature. I think it's probably correct. But does an occupying force have the right to defend itself? That to me doesn't seem simple. That to me seems incredibly complex. If you are a superpower and you're occupying another state, do you have the right to defend yourself? You know, Russia in Ukraine, say a, a Ukrainian um, does some act of, of terrorism whereby they, they kill a bunch of Russian civilians. Um, does Russia then have the right to defend itself and to, to bomb Ukraine even harder, right? I mean, you could make the argument it does. I don't think that the BBC and Western media would uncritically repeat that and say, well, of course, Russia has the right to defend itself because there was a Ukrainian terrorist that blew up some people in or shot some people in, in Moscow. I think the idea that that would give justification for Russia to bomb even harder a country it is already occupying would seem somewhat odd. Um, so, yeah, I, I think with the BBC, to some degree, it's stopping the discourse get as crazy as it would be getting if we didn't have a public service broadcaster. So, you know, Talk TV, GB News, the press, the newspapers, um, LBC, these are all places where the discourse is just ridiculous, right? Because people just give these same talking points, put this good versus evil narrative on a situation. They don't know any history. They don't understand the context whatsoever. All they're interested in doing is, is moralizing and demanding that people condemn this or condemn that, right? If we didn't have the BBC, I'd be worried we'd be even further in, in that direction. So to some degree, it is anchoring um, discussion to, to some degree in reality. But there are also places that the BBC isn't willing to go. And what that does do is I think it sort of creates this, this common sense, which isn't actually reality. You know, it's closer to reality than talk TV. It's closer to reality than the Times or the Daily Mail. But what it's ignoring is the fact that it's this is an occupying force and the Palestinians are an occupied people. And I think unless in every single report you make reference to that and sort of introduce that context and say, you cannot understand this situation unless you recognize that Israel is an occupier and the Palestinians are occupied, then I don't think you are reporting accurately. That is context which is absolutely essential. And it has to be essential essentially in, in every report. Because otherwise what you get is you say, well, the Palestinians killed some civilians. Now the Israelis are killing some civilians. You know, uh, there's more Palestinians now have died than Israelis. It's this sort of it's this sort of game which two sides are playing and then you're sort of judging them who's broken the rules more and what that ignores is the context in which this is taking the fact that Israel have been breaking the rules for for decades now with their illegal occupation and and so that would be my criticism of the BBC not as bad as for some other media outlets but there is a fundamental reality which they are are ignoring for one reason or another I mean, the BBC, I, I agree on a whole, have not been as bad, but we have seen then, I think, North Africa correspondent resign. And there also was a piece on the 16th of October uh, titled Israeli Fighter Follows in His Father's Footsteps, written by a senior journalist, Clive Mary, who I usually have a lot of respect for, which I would describe as basically just a puff piece on how great and how important it is being in the IDF. And I just want to share some 
bits from this piece. Uh, here is one paragraph. So it's about a father and son. His father served in his IDF, in the IDF. His son now serves in the IDF. Uh, and this is how they describe the situation and the history of Israel and Palestine. All this as Israel continued to build an occupied land in the West Bank. No idea about illegal occupied land there. Israel later put Gaza under a blockade and launched a number of ground offences into the territory. After the recent atrocities by Hamas, troops are poised to go into Gaza again. So absolutely <laughs> no explanation of you know illegal settlements in the West Bank, no explanation of this what this blockade means. Just this idea that, yes, Israel was right to be secure. They had to put Gaza under blockade. And they launched some you know, ground offences, didn't say anything about casualties, etc. And I, I want to read you the quote they have ended on from the son who is now going to 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 into into Gaza and he says this now what i have to do is important there is no higher call no higher meaning in life than fighting pure evil in the 20th century it was the nazis right now it's muslim extremists we have to fight this ideology for good to win and liberalism to win and for us to continue living the free life that we want to live quote ends and then it reads the jewish people were supposed to be safe in israel they believed there would be no more mass murder if they lived in their own land after the unbearable trauma of the Holocaust. That's what helped spur the movement for a Jewish homeland at the end of World War II. But the Arab world did not accept the new state, with at least 750,000 Palestinians being forced to flee their new homes. Absolutely no challenge to the idea you know, that what we're fighting is pure evil. This idea that Israel was meant to be this safe land. No, no going into the history. It is literally a puff piece that has been published on the BBC by a senior journalist and no one seems to have picked this up or talked about impartiality in relation to it. You can go and read it yourself. It's called Israeli Fighter Follows in His Father's Footsteps. And it's pieces like that that make me think that maybe the BBC is doing as badly as other outlets. Anyway, thank you, Michael, for joining me tonight. As always, your brain has been very valued. <laughs> thank you. That's a very, very complimentary and thanks to all of you for tuning in the show is back tomorrow from 6 p.m but before i go here's a little something to maybe motivate you a bit more last night uh glasgow football team and champions celtic sorry played atletico madrid in the uefa champions league celtics fans had been asked by the club not to fly fags related to the israeli military campaign in gaza and that's when this happened
This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.